Yeah, and for our um, core team that's doing the discipleship, uh, we're starting our Why Revival Terry's month of July. So hopefully everybody has their book. Does everybody have their book? You didn't get your book? I'm like looking around, I'm like, <laughs> it must be upstairs. Why Revival Terry's? There is a book. I sent the box of them. Oh, okay. It's upstairs for you. Uh, did you get a book for Audrey? Sorry. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> Just yeah. making sure. We're not meeting on Wednesdays, which we normally do, so this is our t- point to touch base. So, um, Is there any other announcements? That's it. Have? We're good. Okay. Um, so today is July 1st, and actually um, all across the nation, there's hundreds of thousands of churches that are actually participating in something today called the Call to Fall. And really what that is, is July 4th, all of you know, is we're, as a nation, are acknowledging and celebrating our Independence Day as a country, which is, July 4th is one of the most significant days for our, our nation, truly. Um, but basically, FRC, out of Washington, D.C., Tony Perkins, they initiated this, and basically, their initiating of this was specifically based upon before we can actually celebrate July 4th, our Independence Day, before we can celebrate independence as a nation, we ultimately need to, the Sunday before, take time to acknowledge our dependence upon God. That the only way that we actually stand as a free and independent nation is by the mercy of God and in our dependence upon Him. So all across the nation... Um, churches are taking time to pray, but they actually gave us very, very clear, direct um, guidelines of what they had on their heart for us to pray for. And I'll be honest with you, it really stirred my heart. Um, and so instead of us taking five minutes like they asked, we're actually going to take our whole service. <laughs> um, and this is what I want to say. is pretty much from reading over the, all of their material, they desperately desire and their vision of what they want us to be praying for is revival in America. Which for all of you that are here on a weekly basis, this is pretty much what we're all about and what we're giving our lives for. And in our generation, there is, that's the singular calling. If you're wondering what the call of God is on your life, contend for revival. <laughs> like that, that is it in a broad statement. Give your life to that and through it you'll find your calling, I promise. Um, <laughs> it's true. Um, but aside from that, really what they began to outline was is that as a nation, we can look at the issue of abortion. We can look at the sex industry. We can look at the Supreme Court that just ruled on health care, which I'm sure even in this room there's a lot of emotion concerning all of those things. We can look at all of those things, but biblically, the understanding in the Bible, and really rooted in 2 Chronicles 7.14. How many of you, when I say the reference, 2 Chronicles 7.14, it's okay, don't raise your hand, because I don't want anybody to be embarrassed. But when I say 2 Chronicles 7.14, you go, I know that verse. Like, kind of, it's, it's repeated, it's redundant, we know it in the body of Christ. And honestly, as a, a young adult that was raised in the church... I knew that verse very well and could quote it to you, but it really wasn't until I was spending time preparing for this specific message that something struck my heart from that passage of scripture that has never struck my heart before. And it's really going to be what we spend. We're going to spend about 15 minutes um, looking at scripture, and then we're going to go into a time of prayer together. Um, but Second Chronicles 7.14, I'm going to read it to you. And for those of you that don't know it, it's the passage, If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Honestly, 
I, as a, a, a young person growing up in the body of Christ, I think what was highlighted in my mind all along was that if we pray and seek his face, he's going to heal our land. For some reason, no one ever trumpeted or declared or even showed me the gravity of the healing of the land. Yes, number one, it is humbling ourselves, seeking God's face and praying, but it says turning from our wicked ways. He literally puts that upon the body of Christ, of us turning from our wicked ways will produce healing in the land. So if we wonder how is the great reversal going to come to America, if we stand back and even feel powerless at the Supreme Court or government or the epidemic of sex trafficking and all of these things, I want to tell you this is the remedy right here is for the healing of a land. And oftentimes what we'll do is we'll take that portion about, okay, we're going to seek God's face and we're going to pray for revival. Well, let's call a prayer meeting. And lots of times we'll respond even to the call to pray as much as I think in our Western culture it's a very casual response to pray that we, that we take. But we've, we've failed to trumpet that the, the other portion that is just as important and relevant is that we have to turn from our wicked ways. And I know most of us in this room, we're sitting here going, well, wicked ways. Like, it's not like any of us are involved with illicit um, sexual activity or drug addiction or any of those things. But really, when you study the turn from your wicked ways, the Bible very clearly in Matthew 5, I just I don't have time today, but I encourage all of you to read Matthew 5. It is Christianity 101. It is the constitution of the kingdom, and it really delineates even the definition of sin for us as believers. And Matthew 5 is actually where it says in the Old Testament, it's if you murdered someone that you were judged under the law. In the New Testament, it's if you have hatred in your heart. In the Old Testament, it was if you committed adultery, that you were under discipline of the law. In the New Testament, it's if you have lust in your heart. This is where, as believers, it comes down to the very inward place of our heart, the meditations of our life, what we dwell upon, the desires of our heart, and what we're acting out in that place. So in 2 Chronicles 7.14, we have, if we truly, as a generation, are burdened for our nation, this is the remedy to see healing in our land. Honestly, for all of us, we, we could even go stand at the Supreme Court and pray for the ending of abortion. But unless there is the very practical outworking in our own lives of ridding our own hearts of wickedness, we stand in judgment ourselves. And I know that that's a, that's a hard thing to grasp and to understand, but what I want to do is I want to take two seconds, because there might be even some of you in this room are kind of going, are we as a nation really in that much of a critical position, or is it really that much of a desperate hour for America? I want to just lay out a couple of facts and things for you to understand, and then more move into the practical application. Um, so for those of you, number one, as we're celebrating Independence um, Day, July 4th, I'm going to give you a little... American History 101 super fast here. If anywhere in your mind you debate that America is a Christian nation, yes, through history there was Masonic roots. Yes, there was other areas of mixture in there. No argument. I'm not even going to go there. Yes, there was places of mixture. But fundamentally, America, when you look into, go back as far as Governor Winthrop that came aboard the Arabella and landed here, he wrote what was called a model for Christian charity. It was literally the model for how we were going to govern ourselves as a nation. So it, it was literally a covenant with God. And he literally said that basically if we honor God, we're going to be blessed. 
If we dishonor God, we will become a byword amongst the nations. I mean, he was laying out a community that was being sent and covenanted as a community that was literally called a city set upon a hill out of Matthew 5 and a light to all peoples. And then separate from that, I encourage you to look up something called um, the Mayflower Compact. It was another covenant that was made. These are all covenants that were made before God. And hear me, when we preach scripture here at Jehoah, you have to understand, we don't believe in repentant theology that somehow we've taken the place of Israel. We believe all of these passages are that were addressed to Israel are for Israel. But what you have to understand, if we apply them, what we're applying them as is the similarity is America is the only other nation that was founded upon a covenant with God. That's remarkable. I mean, that's... But really, do you want to hear something very interesting? We don't have time for me to turn there, but I encourage you to look up Jeremiah um, chapter 8, 7 through 11. And basically what this passage of scripture, Jeremiah is prophesying, and he says that the Lord says that if I have said said that I'm out to bless you as a nation, but you turn your heart away from me, that in your turning, I am no longer obligated to bless you, now I will judge you. But he says the opposite is true. He says, if I have set out a word of destruction against a nation, but they return to me, that then he will not follow through with destruction and he will give a blessing instead. And really where that speaks to us is there was a supernatural divine blessing invoked upon our nation because of our forefathers. The financial security and success, our influence in the nations of the earth had everything to do with men and women of God that knew that they were dependent upon the Almighty. Everything that we, we are literally living off of the tailcoats of what these men and women understood, of what was, what they laid down their life in covenant with God. But there comes a point where we can only live off of their sacrifices and their covenants for so long. But I do believe we stand very much in a moment like Jeremiah 8. That although the Lord has set to bless us, because we've turned away from him with the, I mean, countless things we could go into as far as even legislation. But when it comes down to the shedding of innocent blood in our land, when it comes right down to our television screens, what is pumping out across America night after night of profanity and adultery and cursing and wickedness and sorcery. I mean, we have become a hotbed for what the Bible actually calls wickedness. That's how it's defined in the Bible, is wickedness. See, in American culture, when we're struggling with an area of sin, we define it as weakness. Truly. We, we define, and even in Second Chronicles, he doesn't say, if my people who are called by name, my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their weaknesses, then I will heal their land. It's not a weakness if we're struggling in areas of sin and bondage. It is wickedness that we are participating in. It is wickedness. And I don't want to bring this as a hard word to you, and I in no way, if you're new here, want you to feel as though I'm the judgment preacher because I'm not. My life is a product of grace. And I wholly depend upon that. I mean, my testimony is it's the jealous love of God that has kept me. Okay? I, I don't think I'm good or better. But I will say this. Unless we have an understanding of sin and what the Bible calls wickedness, we will never respond appropriately because we'll forever be making excuses. And what that is is sleeping with the enemy. 
Any person that wants to justify sin to you and excuse it as a weakness that somehow they don't present before you a vision of holiness and righteousness, I'm going to tell you right now, they are not a friend to you because what they are doing is they are leading your soul into bondage. And those of us that condone that place of compromise, sin, and wickedness, what we are doing is we are making a pact with the devil. The very person that has come to destroy, the very person that has come to rob and to kill us, we have made peace with, rather than warring against. And that is the true definition in this passage where it says, turn from your wickedness. It's not simply repent one minute and then continue doing it and relying upon the grace of God to cover you. Yes, I understand there is a place that we wrestle against sin. But that's when from within we have the longing to be free. And although you may struggle for a season, your heart cry is not settling in that place and coming to peace and agreement with it. Your heart cry is, I want freedom and liberty not to be under the bondage of the oppressor, but to walk in the fullness of what God has intended and ordained, which is holiness, righteousness, purity, for you to walk in a place of immunity. That the, when the wicked one comes, he finds no place in you. That's your portion. And so any preaching that it goes forth as far as purity and holiness, it's a desire for your soul to prosper. There is no condemnation. There is no anger. It's a desire for you to prosper. And as Jesus said, to know life and life more abundantly. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. For us to experience peace and joy, it comes from righteousness, and it comes from a healthy, clear understanding of righteousness. So what I want to lay out before you guys is basically over the past 80 years in America, this is an 80-year timeline. So what we have is in 1924, from 1944, is actually what's called the Builder Generation. And at that time period in America, there was 65% church engagement. Now hear me when I say this. When I use the term church engagement, I'm not saying even people that just went and sat in a pew on Sunday. I'm talking when you take the polls and when you really wrestle for how it affected people's voting, how it affected people's life choices. It was church engagement in the sense of they were living the reality of the gospel message, not just professing it in name because we're a Christian nation. 65% church engagement. Then from 1945 to 1965, which is called the boomer generation, we declined to 35% church engagement. This is in the U.S. Then from 1966 to 1983, which is called the buster generation, we had declined to 15% church engagement. From 1984 into 2009, which is actually when this poll took place, which is called the bridger generation, we had declined to 4 percent church engagement in America. This is America, what we call a Christian nation that was destined and ordained to be a city set upon a hill and a light to all people. Four percent Christian church engagement. And it's actually estimated that we're probably now, because of the time frame of these polls and the studies that have been done recently, we're either at three or two percent presently. So basically what you see is over the past 80 years, there has been a consistent steady decline of Christian church engagement in America. And what you have to understand actually about studies of cultures, not just America, but we're talking cultures and we're not just talking Christianity, we're talking people, group, people groups within cultures. 
is that when you have 16% of a population in a culture, say whether that be Muslim, whether that be Christian, whether that be Hindu, whatever that may be, if you have 16% within a culture, that's actually the point that that people group can re be reproductive, that can multiply and create movement and momentum as a people. It basically means that there is a growth process that you'll see amongst them. If, if that people group is at 10% of the population, they're, they're capable of reproducing, but it's unlikely that they're able at 10%. So it's almost like at 10%, it's a critical point. At 2%, here at 2%, 2%, it is questionable if that people group can remain or if they will become extinct. That, that is a frightening, frightening reality. Hear, hear me. I'm not saying that without hope, that because we're with a 3 to 2%, that somehow we're without hope. I'm saying that, number one, it exposes the critical hour that we're in in America. But number two, it speaks to this passage in Second Chronicles, and even, even in Jeremiah 8, that if we respond appropriately, that this is the hour that the Lord can come in and we can see a great reversal. See, what we need to understand is, mind you, most of you are fully aware, during this time frame of the past 80 years, we saw the Azusa Street Revival in California. We saw throughout Chicago, the Midwest, we saw the South. We saw sporadic outpourings of revival and awakening throughout the country. So there were definitely geographical locations that experienced revival. But none of them had the strength and none of them had the revolutionary force to bring a nation back to God. So the question becomes, really, as the church, why are we in such a, a season and a, and a place of decline? What, it, what is the epidemic that we're facing that is causing such decline rather than reproduction in our country? I'm going to actually read to you out of this book. Um, the book is called, in case you want to read it for yourself, it's called When a Nation Dies, and it's called America on the Brink. And this book, what it does, it identifies, and it's, it, this is more in general, it identifies ten warning signs of any culture or people group that are in crisis of eventually um, experiencing the death of a nation or a people. And basically what it defines is that there's three critical areas of every culture. Number one is social decay. Number two is cultural decay. And number three is moral decay. So we have social cultural and moral decay. That's ultimately what this guy actually assesses when there's the decline of a nation. And under social decay, just to outline it for you, and you can see where we are in America, under social decay, it involves politics, government, and business. When there's the increase of lawlessness in the land, when there's the lack of economic discipline in the land, and when there's rising bureaucracy. Those are, those are the warning signs of decay, and, and that a nation is in trouble, of becoming a dead nation is the way he terms it. Cultural decay, the decline in education, education, the weakening of cultural foundations, the loss of respect for tradition, an increase in materialism. Moral de decay, which is the family and religion, is the loss of moral values. It's the decay of biblical values and the devaluing of human life. Those are all the warning signs for a nation which every single one of them are things that we actually see as a crisis point in America right now. There's not one of those that you can look at or read and not realize that America is facing all of them, not just one of them. 
In the first area of social decay, increasing lawlessness, in 2010 national statistics that revealed that in a population of close to um, um, 310 million people, that there were 10,329 crimes committed, 1,250,000 violent crimes, and over 15,000 murders. Um, I mean, this goes on and on and on, but basically what he does is he actually outlines through all of these statistics, and I won't bore you with all of them, he goes through the outrageous number of, of rise in lawlessness in, in the year 2010. He goes through national debt. I mean, I won't go through all the statistics with you, just even as far as the last three years, how it's um, increased and where we are regarding the trillions and all of those things. He outlines all of these areas that mark a nation that is on the brink of death and basically destroying itself. And every single one of those are earmarks of where we're at as a nation. Um, but basically, he finishes with, in the area of moral and spiritual decay, we are rapidly falling into a moral cliff of decadence. Pornography, homosexuality, lesbianism, sexual promiscuity, sister wives, same-sex marriage, teen pregnancy, adultery and fornication, abortion on demand, loss of church attendance, increasing of Islam, the persecution of Christian values on every corner, False religions and philosophies, Satanism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, divorce rates in the evangelical churches are comparable and sometimes higher than that of secular marriages. And how can this change? Hear me, I'm not presenting that to you to in any way discourage you, but ultimately, Lou Engel has always said, before we can have a great awakening, we have to have a rude awakening. That's right. There's nothing in our heart that is actually stirred to a place of desperation unless we rightly assess the situation. And just, I, I want to put it to you this way, is that when a, do a doctor comes and diagnoses you with cancer, he's not pronouncing death over you. Actually, that's your moment of hope to know what is waging war in your body so that then you can take appropriate action to eradicate it. That's the posture. I just want to hear. I want you to hear me. It is not a doom and gloom message. And for people that are highlighting the crisis in the land, for people that are trumpeting and saying there's a crisis in the land, they are in no way pronouncing judgment upon America. What they are doing is they are messengers of hope. That is the only hope of a nation, and that is the only hope for a people, is if we rightly diagnose if we rightly assess our present state so we can rightly respond. And so I'm hoping that we're all on the same page now regarding understanding the day and the hour in which we live, the generation in which we live, the nation in which we live, and ultimately the responsibility that is upon us as people and how we respond. I'm going to read this excerpt from you. It says, how awesome is it to read of past great awakenings where numbers equaled 10% of the national, the, the national population being saved in less than a year. Could you imagine in America if 10% of the American population was saved in one year? This is what we need. This is what we need. This is exactly what we need. And I'm going to go so far to say is that without a great awakening, it will be the undoing of our nation. The only hope for our nation right now is a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How can we see another great awakening? Certainly prayer is critical, evangelism is required, yet according to God's word, prayer and evangelism must be sorry, combined with a profound return to holiness and spiritual cleansing. 
And this actually goes back to 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is what I started out with. And it says this element is key and is so missing in today's church. Alongside the, the exciting new strategies for prayer and evangelism, we must see a return to utter humility, dependence upon God, and holiness. There is precise, this is the price. Uh, anyway, I won't get into all of that. Before the Great Awakening, all of you, I'm sure, that are from the New England area are familiar with the Great Awakening that took place. How many of you guys know what message it was that was preached just prior to it? There was one famous message that was preached, and then from that, the Great Awakening was birthed. It's a message I can get. I've read it. I've studied it. I like it. I have a hard time with some of the theology of it. (laughs) I would never preach it, actually, because I'd probably be stoned in America presently if I did. But this message that was preached actually caused the church to come under such a weight of conviction and fear of God that mass repentance broke out, and it began in the church. It started with the church doing exactly 2 Chronicles 7.14. They turned from their wicked ways. Jonathan Edwards preached a message called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Wow. In America, where we preach the happy gospel, that does not go over so well. The image of an angry God. See, I believe that God is a happy God. I'm I'm so into that. I believe he delights in each one of us. But unless we understand that his judgment is not against us as people, it is against sin. What Jonathan Edwards basically preached and trumpeted profoundly, because he's a phenomenal theologian, is the wrath of God against sin. And as he preached it, the entire congregation came under such fear and trembling. The fear of God was returned to Northampton. It was one community of people coming underneath the fear of God that birthed the Great Awakening. That is profound. That is Bible. You know, my question as I began, I was reading over Jonathan Edwards' message, I began to think, Maybe that awakening in our culture, I know that there's a lot of things that we're praying into and desiring, but what if awakening is simply this, when the fear of God returns to the body of Jesus Christ? This is what I, I'm just going to give you an understanding of the fear of God right here. Every single one of you, I'm going to let you know that over the past month, every single moment of your life has been recorded. Every conversation, everything that you've meditated on can be revealed on this big screen. Every time you've contradicted yourself and even couldn't even make a commitment to one person and instead of being honest with them, you made up your big fabrication. Everything you viewed on your TV or your internet or your iPhone. All your wasted hours. All of those things. And what we're going to do is we're just going to put it up here. And we're going to watch the last month of your life. I'm sure there's many people in the room that even if it isn't big, grave sins that like you could get hung for, just the small areas of inconsistency. There's a, there would be a fear and a panic in our hearts that would think, every moment of my last month, let me think about that for a moment. Do I want you all to see that? Do I want it all displayed? But this is what I'm going to say to you. Forget that. I could care less about knowing what you did for the last month. That is the kind of fear that we should have that the all-knowing, all-seeing eyes of God 
do see every moment of our life. And for some reason, we don't care. We live more in the fear of man than we live in the fear of God. You care more about what I think about you and your misfallings and your failings and what you're doing with your time than you actually care about how God assesses and evaluates the sum total of our life. I mean, honestly, if we felt as though we will give an account before him for the moments of our life, the, the how we spend our time, I can guarantee if the fear of God was returned to the Church of America, we would live drastically different. See, instead of living for preservation, we would actually live for abandonment. That's what we would do. Our priorities would change. Everything would be altered if the fear of God is what was motivating you rather than the fear of man. <laughs> Maybe awakening will come to our land when a healthy fear of God is restored. We have become far too comfortable and casual with the presence of God. I'm actually just going to um, read to you during... I, I understand, and I'm going to read a passage of scripture. Um... You know, sometimes when I sit with people and talk with people about things that I may share or Daryl may share or whatever, I kind of sometimes just sit back and kind of go, it's the Bible. Like if it's offensive, if it bothers you, if it feels unattainable or difficult or I'm a jerk, it's the Bible. Like ultimately all I'm doing is I'm saying if you say you really want God, if you're saying you really want liberty, if we really want revival, all I'm saying is this is the word of God. And this is what we have to wrestle for. This is Ephesians, actually. New Testament, not Old Testament. So it's um, after Christ, after the cross. And this is actually what's declared in um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. is Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Uh, basically, the reason I'm reading this is because now, I mean, this speaks about having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but it's our role to expose them. Not to take part in them, not to participate in them, but to expose them. Um, for it is shameful to even speak of these things which are done by them in secret. But all things are exposed, are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes man manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is the place of awakening. This is the place, if we want spiritual awakening, he says, come out of agreement with the unfruitful works of darkness. Come into agreement with the light. Awake you who sleep. The slumber that is upon the church, the passivity that is upon the church, largely the state that we are in with the Supreme Court or even Obama in office, has to do with the church abdicating their place of being salt and light, even having a, vo a voice in the voting arena. And this is where he says, come out from the unfruitful works of darkness. 
No longer have fellowship with them. Arise, you who sleep. Awake, you who sleep. Ultimately, we actually want to move right now into a, a time of prayer. But really what I want to highlight before we move into a time of prayer is these passages of Scripture, ultimately what they're speaking to is we can stand in judgment of homosexuality and we can assess that as a sin, that the Bible speaks against it, that it's not condoned biblically. We can look at these things, but even, we have a largely young adult community here, although we do have, some of us are married and some older, but we have a largely young adult community. And in the area of entertainment that has largely overtaken our culture, what I want to highlight to you as far as this understanding of being in fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness is that when you are watching videos that portray, portray sexual activity taking place, that's perversion. In, in, in its rawest form, like without calling it entertainment or they're acting so it's not real and how we rationalize all of it, it's perversion. You're right now beholding another man and woman having a sexual exchange, which is none of your business that should be behind closed doors and nobody else should see. I mean, if it's appropriate, we can film one of the married couples here and we can, you would never, ever, would you? You can clearly see the line of distinction of how inappropriate that would be if it's a couple that you knew, but for, why is it on the big screen when it's a couple that you don't know, you can partake in even seeing scenes that are inappropriate that your eyes should never behold? But that measure of understanding and even contrast of entertainment, we have to understand, we have no place to pray against perversion in the homosexual community when we partake in it. You know, you might think that their perversion is somehow different than yours. It's perversion. The Bible actually says that if you gossip against a brother, that it's as if you have the, 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 the bloodshed of the innocent upon your hands. I mean, this is where, I mean, I'm sorry if this sounds challenging, it's Bible. But honestly, if we would wrestle with the reality of the Word of God, rather than putting it aside because it doesn't make us feel good and it infringes upon our liberties and our desires and all of those things, we would see the reality of what they saw in the days of Jonathan Edwards. If we would come under the healthy fear of the Lord, a clear understanding of righteousness and holiness, and if we would wrestle for that reality, we would see the great awakening that our hearts long for. It was actually, it was a Finney or Whitfield that said that revival is no more a miracle than sowing a grain of wheat and bringing forth a harvest. It's a principle of sowing and reaping. It's a principle of sowing and reaping. And this is what I want to challenge with our community. We're going to move into a time, we're not going to pray for the elections in November and God somehow save America. What we're going to say, God, is save the church of America. Our prayer is awaken us to righteousness, O oh God. If he could awaken the church of America to righteousness, there is hope for a nation. If he could awaken us to righteousness, if he promises that he'll re relent from judging us and bring a blessing instead. That is the promise of his word. That he'll come and heal our land. See, the answer to everything that we've portrayed today is the, of the devastation in America is the church humbling itself before him and just saying, no more games. It's no more what I get caught in or what the eyes of man see or what someone holds me accountable for or waiting until I've acted out in such devastating sin that then I need to repent. 
We're going to wrestle for the integrity within our hearts of saying, God, you know all and you see all, and I live before your eyes alone. Awaken me to righteousness. Awaken me to righteousness, oh God. What we're going to do is we're going to start this segment of prayer. We're actually going to start it on our knees. I'm not asking that you guys stay on your knees for the whole time, um, but we're going to start it on our knees for several reasons. Is um, We have prayer leaders that are going to pray into several segments of Scripture. Um, they have areas that they're going to be praying into. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to move into praying in agreement with whoever is praying as the prayer leader. And then at the end of our segment, what we'll do is we'll open it up if there's anybody that has something specific on their heart that they want to pray in agreement in relation to that. But ultimately, the Word of God says in Peter that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's, It's the beauty of Jesus that when we just simply humble ourselves before Him, when we just simply say, I screwed it up, I don't got it all right, I need you. Posture of humility attracts the presence of God. And that when we're operating in pride, He actually resists us. So we're going to start this segment of, of praying on our knees. And like I said, for the rest of the segment, you're welcome to sit, stand, however you're comfortable. But what we're doing right now is we're saying, God, as a nation, we acknowledge our utter dependency upon you, Jesus. God, we acknowledge, God, that as a people, God, outside of your mercy, we cannot stand. God, outside of your mercy, God, we have no hope. God, we just confess to you even right now, God, that there's many areas in our life that we have lived independent of you. God, that we have ignored your laws and ignored your statutes. We have ignored your commands and your desires. God, that we have gone our own way. God, we just even as an entire nation recognize, God, as your word says that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. God, we just say, Lord, we want to take this time on our knees, God. God, to say, Father, that we resist the pride of our heart. God, we resist, Lord, the going our own way. And God, we come to humble ourselves before you, God. And we say, we're in need. God, we need your help. God, we need your intervention. God, we say, God, we don't want religious structures and organizations. God, we say, God, we don't want, Lord, business as usual or to go about Lord, our services and our our, our regimented ideas of what it should look like. But God, we say, God, we want you to break into our lives. God, we say, disrupt our complacency. God, disrupt every place that we live under self and self-preservation. God, I ask, God, even now, would you disrupt every place, God, that we live more in the fear of man than the fear of God. God, I ask, Lord, as a gift, Lord, to our community, God, as the Church of America, God, we ask you, Lord, for the gift of repentance. God, that we could rightly see the error of our ways and return to you. God, even right now, we just, we silence the accuser of the brethren in Jesus' name. 
We silence even the voice of accusation that, that, that when certain scriptures like today are preached that somehow it seems hard or difficult or impossible. God, we thank you, Lord, that it's only by your grace, Lord. God, that it's only by your mercy. And God, we thank you, Lord, that it's you that extends an invitation. That if you return to me, I will return to you. Lord, that you don't stand in judgment, casting us off. But God, you call and you beckon and you long for us to return. So God, we say, Lord, we want to be a people that are responsive. That respond to your heart, oh God. God, we want to return to you with our whole hearts our mind, our soul, our spirit. Father, this morning and this evening, God, we want to deal first with sin of thought, Lord, the area, God, where our thoughts are unsubmitted to you, where your scripture, 2 Corinthians, calls us to pull down, to cast down imaginations and thoughts that exalt itself against the knowledge of Christ. So, Lord, this evening, Lord, we stand on behalf of ourselves, but also stand, Lord, on behalf of the body of Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you, God, would captivate our imaginations, Lord. You would arrest our thoughts, God. Father, we ask for forgiveness for every area, Father, where we have let our imaginations, our thoughts, be unsubmitted to your Lordship. God, I ask, Lord, for intervention on behalf of the body of Christ. I ask, God, that you would come and captivate us once again. Be the anchor of all our thoughts, Lord. I ask, Lord, that through arresting our mind, Lord, that we would become heavenly minded. Lord, that you would cause the church's eyes to be placed upon Christ, the author and the finisher of their faith. Lord, forgive us, but yet captivate us, God. In Jesus' name. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be even named among you as is fitting for saints. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things which are done by them in secret. Father, we come to you today, Lord, and repent, God, for having fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. Father, for not taking a stand against even the immorality and sexuality that that plagues our society. Father, we come before you tonight, Lord, 
in repentance and recognizing, Father, where we've a plague with fire in this area, God, of, of letting our eyes be set upon things, God, of wickedness, Father, of even desiring, Father, to be um, desirous, Lord, God, of lusting after the things of the flesh. Lord, I have just come to you, God, on behalf of my own heart, Lord. And God, even on the behalf of this nation, Lord, Father, I ask, God, that you would come and cleanse America. God, of sexual immorality, God, of promiscuity. Father, would you come and awaken us, Lord, where we've been dead and sleeping. God, of even the places where we set our eyes upon images, Lord, or even television sets, God, and we've been so dull, God, to even the, the little things, God, that we let go under the radar, Lord, I ask, God, for a great sensitivity to come upon our hearts, to come upon your people, Father, that we would see, that we would set our eyes on things above, God, that we would set our eyes on images, Lord, even as Daryl that our imagination, God, that we would take a war against what we set our eyes upon. Lord, that we would take war to what we allow ourselves to partake in. Father, that we would begin to set our eyes upon things above, that we would be consumed with your spirit once again. God, that we would use 
close our lips for something greater than ourselves. Matthew 6, 14. For if you give, forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your sermon that you gave us, Lord. We just declare that you are Lord. Thank you for your blood. Lord, we repent. We repent for not walking in forgiveness, Lord. Not walking in humility with our brothers and our sisters, Lord. Lord, we call on you. You who went to the cross for us, Lord. Teach us to walk in forgiveness, Lord. Teach us to relate to our brother and our sisters, Lord. Lord, we say we want to be known as your disciples, Lord. Help us to love one another, Lord.
desire that we be one or the other. God, we ask, God, every place, God, that we have been those that have not been hot or cold, but, God, that we've been somewhere in between. God, that we desire you momentarily, and, God, that desire leaves us. God, we ask, Lord, would you awaken our hearts and even baptize us with the fire of love. God, we ask, God, even as your word doesn't ask us, but, Lord, it commands us in John 15, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. God, we ask, God, every place that we have not taken your word and your desire and your command to abide in you. And, Lord, that we have not followed hard after it. Lord, we have not sought it with wholeheartedness. But, God, we've almost seen it as optional. Lord, for those that are mystical or those that are radical. But, God, we ask, Lord, even now, Father, that every place that we have neglected fellowship with you. God, every place that we have neglected even waiting upon you daily. God, every place that we have neglected feeding upon your word and being strengthened in your word and it's caused weakness within us. Lord, that it's made us susceptible to so many other things. Lord, because we have not filled our spirit with you who are our portion.
And God, we say, Lord, we have not desired you more than our necessary bread. God, we have not been those, Lord, that, that awaken longing to hear your voice and to fellowship with you. But God, we ask, Lord, even now, Lord, would you come and awaken greater desire within us? Lord, I ask, Lord, would you awaken within us an appetite for your word? A hunger and a longing for your word. We just want to take a few minutes. If there's anybody specifically that wants to respond in prayer, we're going to take a few minutes before we move on. Father, even as a sick person loses its appetite, God, that the loss of appetite is actually a sign of sickness. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would come as a great physician, Lord, and come and heal us. God, that appetite would be restored. Father, even as you said in your word that you did not come for those that are healthy, but you came for those who are sick. Lord, we come to you and, and, and just Confess the, the place of sickness in our life, Lord. God, we, we profess our need before you tonight. Lord, and say, restore hunger in us. God, restore appetite in us. Lord, every place of neglect, God, every time we may pick up a magazine, Lord, or pick up a tele, turn on the TV, God, or video games or computers or whatever it may be, Lord, and in the place where we neglect your word. God, whether it's sleep, whatever it may be, Father, that we use as replacement for the time that should be spent in your word. Lord, I ask, God, would you awaken us. God, awaken desire, awaken hunger within us. 